Hi, my name is Riley Haas. I'm the host of No Cultural Authority, a raucous podcast about classic albums, and I'm also the co-host of the Backtrack, a hockey podcast about the Hall of Fame. This podcast you're about to listen to is based on my 2013 book, The Beatles Are the Greatest Rock Band of All Time, and I Can Prove It, which you can find online at Amazon and Smashwords. So, up next, we have arguably the weirdest album in the Beatles catalog, and that is the soundtrack to the Yellow Submarine film. Also, completely unrelated, but super fun piece of trivia, the only Beatles album that I ever owned on vinyl. Well, there you go. That is uh, weird. (laughs) But given that I think the first time I ever watched it was your copy, or at least I feel like in your res room, that sort of makes sense. (laughs) So it's the weirdest Beatles album in their catalog. It's not really canon, but the thing is it contains four tracks that aren't available anywhere, or at least prior to the age of streaming were not available anywhere else, though they are basically rarities and they were from another time. And then it also contains two of their hits and it contains a score written by George Martin. So it's not really a Beatles album, despite the fact that like certainly in the CD store era, you would walk through it or, or vinyl as well, you know, record store era. You'd see it in their albums, in their rack. And of course, it was released as a Beatles album, but it was released as a Beatles album, sort of like without a ton of their permission, even though they were supposedly running everything. So the Beatles tracks it contains are Yellow Submarine, which was a uh, hit single from Revolver, even though it was released as an album track originally, it became a single. Actually, it might have been the double A side with Eleanor Rigby, if I'm not mistaken. And then the new tracks include Only a Northern Song, which was written by George Harrison intended to appear on Sgt. Pepper, was rejected from Sgt. Pepper specifically because everyone thought it was bad. Altogether now, a song by Paul McCartney, which was recorded during the sessions for Magical Mystery Tour, in which Paul McCartney like pleads on record for everyone to get along more, and it was also <laughs> rejected for Magical Mystery Tour, I think probably because everyone was annoyed that Paul McCartney was telling them to get along. Then the next track, uh, Hey Dog" by John Lennon, was recorded for a contender uh, to be their spring 1968 single that instead went to Lady McDonald, uh, Lady McDonald, Lady Madonna. And lastly, It's All Too Much by George Harrison, which was also recorded for Magical Mystery Tour and rejected. And then the last uh, piece of Beatles music is All You Need Is Love, their single from the summer of 1967, which was also the first global satellite broadcast. And then there are six tracks, rather, written by George Martin for the score. So it is not a real Beatles album. It was released to coincide with the animated film that some of us have seen. It took me until university to see, as I just mentioned. The reaction to the album, the critical reaction to the album was so poor that the Beatles actually almost released an EP of the four new tracks separately to be like, hey, no, no, this is this is the music, not don't listen to the the album. And they would also have include Across the Universe, which had not been used yet, but had been recorded, but that's a long story. Now, they didn't actually release it, but they, had, they mastered this EP, and they thought about putting it out. You can say easily, if you, if you think of this as a proper Beatles album, it is the worst Beatles album ever. Certainly more than any of the Bosch American releases that I've not covered, but it's really not a Beatles album. And just to make things extra confusing, in 1999, uh, somebody released the Yellow Submarine song track with a completely different track listing. And I have no idea why. I've never listened to it. I don't know what it is. It's basically a greatest hits record. And I have no idea why it exists. But just just to be clear, we are talking about Yellow Submarine, the soundtrack, not the quote-unquote song track. Again, don't know what that means. So 
George Martin's score isn't all that interesting in terms of film scores. Like it might be above average for a 60s film score. I haven't listened to enough of them. I used to have a thing for the track March of the Meanies when I used to listen to this album too much, but I don't really care anymore. I'd say the two previously released singles, Yellow Submarine, the title track, obviously, and All You Need Is Love are two of their weakest number one songs. So honestly, you know, that's not great either. The only real value for anyone interested in this music is in the quote-unquote new material, which is, of course, pre-White Album outtakes released after the White Album, and so very much out of step with where they were going, especially in January 1969 when this was released, and we were going to talk about that in a minute. So first off, we have only a Northern song, the second song that George Harrison wrote for Sgt. Pepper, but wasn't included because it's not very catchy. And the other reason is that, of course, the song is about how he wasn't getting paid enough money for his songs. He wasn't getting enough of the royalties. And so another reason, in addition to the Beatles, other Beatles not liking the song, maybe it was cut because they weren't happy with him writing a song about how he wasn't getting paid enough. It has been included on many lists of the worst Beatles songs ever. One such reason is because it is supposedly about how the Beatles are now making really weird music, but we should all forgive them for it, in addition to him not getting paid. Honestly, it's not great. But uh, it is, I don't think it's as bad as its reputation, but like nobody's heard it. And that's okay. The, f- the fact that it's stuck on this album, no one listens to is, is not a bad thing. The next track, All Together Now, was, as I said, recorded during the sessions that eventually became a Magical Mystery Tour. Of course, it was written by Paul McCartney as a plea that they shall get along. It is also very much in the vein of Yellow Submarine in terms of its style. It is apparently the pro- official production debut of Paul McCartney, but otherwise it is fairly not notable. And uh, yeah, I mean, I am not a big fan. Hey, Bulldog, for me, is the standout track here. It was yes. recorded as a possible B-side for Lady Madonna or even the A-side. It was in competition for the A-side before they chose Lady Madonna. Across the Universe was also in that competition, but again, we will get into the weird, complicated history of that song later. It is like Lady Madonna. It shows the Beatles decisively abandoning psychedelia, except for the barking noises, but otherwise it is a piano-driven rock song. It features one of the more memorable riffs, I'd say, in the Beatles catalog, along with Day Tripper and Birthday and a few others. Except, of course, it's a piano riff, not a uh, first, rather than a guitar riff first. Mm-hmm. It is, of course, a aside from the barking, a straight-ahead hard rock song. It is credited to John Lennon. However, Paul McCartney apparently came up with the barking, so I don't know if we want to credit him for that. Apparently, some people claim this was the last time all four Beatles had fun in a session at the same time. I would say I when I wrote that sentence for the book, that was before I saw the Get Back documentary. And I can legitimately tell you that there are scenes in that documentary in which they are having fun at the same time. So I think that's not true. I think that's very much part of this whole, like, the Beatles were miserable at the end narrative. It is one of my favorite Beatles songs, though. And it's weird that it's stuck I agree. on I this agree. record. So that's unfortunate because no one's heard it. Lastly, really? I mean... Uh, you said you, this is the only Beatles album you have on vinyl, so it's not surprising that you've heard it. But like, yeah, because I mean, Cable Dog is also one of my favorite Beatles tunes for sure. Yeah, but uh, again, yeah, you you own Yellow Submarine, you know. Yes, I also dated a Beatle maniac for a very long time, which probably yeah. doesn't inform that at all. But it's just it, it's one of those songs that's I it's one of those things that just that strikes me as weird that more people don't know that song. Yeah. But I guess it makes sense because of what the album that it's on. But it's just it's such a fun song. 
it's much easier to find it now during the streaming era. In the past, yeah. you would have the only way to find it was this record. And like, you know, prior to uh prior to like MP3 trading. And so like how many people owned this? Um, give, especially given that half of it's a, a score. I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe more people know it than I I do, or than I think rather. But uh, I'm not aware that it's that well known. But I could be wrong. Lastly, we have "It's All Too Much," uh, which is arguably the all other notable song on the, uh, as I call it, EP hidden in an album. It was begun again at the same time as "All Together Now" in the spring of 1967. But unlike "All Together Now," it actually took a much longer time to finish because it's a lot longer and there's a lot more going on. It is highly referential. It both quotes the pop standard "Sorrow," and it features a trumpet quote of a Baroque march. It uses extensive feedback. You can compare this feedback in Altogether Now to I Feel Fine, and you'll see a huge difference in how far they come in, in three years. And I Feel Fine, it's this really sort of clunky thing that you know, barely even sounds like feedback and you know, it's all too much. It's this wave of distortion. Weirdly, no one can agree on who played the guitar part. All three Beatles have been, all three main Beatles have been credited with it. The Beatles Bible says it's George Harrison and John Lennon, which is weird. I don't, I hear one person. All Music says it's Paul McCartney. To me, it sounds like Paul McCartney as a player. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. It's just interesting. It's one of those things that no one can agree on. No one has any memory of it. It's a bit of a nifty piece, but it's also very long and kind of directionless. And, you know, this it was even cut down, I think, from a longer piece, which tells you how directionless that was. It is certainly unlike anything else George Harrison created for the Beatles. Some of them were super long and then cut down when they were released. But like in terms of stuff that was actually released, it's one of it's arguably the weirdest non-Indian piece of music he created. It's funny. This is a like I said, this is an edited version, and it's one of the five longest Beatles songs they ever released. So gives you an idea of like, you know, the Beatles were, as I've said before, often very good at cutting things down to a more appropriate length compared to a lot of their contemporaries, because Mm -hmm. this is the the cut, and it is among the five longest songs they ever made. So I think if even if this music had been released as an EP separate from the soundtrack, it still would have been a disappointment. Honestly, it's only a Northern song and altogether now, in my opinion, belong on anthology, not on an album. A single with Hey Bulldog and Across the Universe had been released on its own, I think honestly would have been a fairly big deal, especially what we know happening to Across the Universe later. And it's not like they couldn't have done that. There was plenty of space between Lady Madonna and Hey Jude when it came out. And actually, they didn't really release a single around the time of the White Album. So just this to me is it's a mess. It's also weird that they also had Carnival of Light sitting around still, which, like I have said many times, was not released. So they could have expanded this into some kind of like slightly bigger mini album. But the Ellison Marine soundtrack is completely unessential. And even if you don't have all these four songs, even though Dave and I both like Hey Bulldog a lot, and I, I, I'm somewhat fond of it's all too much. Like it really doesn't matter. <laughs> you never hear this, you know? It's like basically, it's not part of my case, is <laughs> what I'm trying to say, despite spending all that time on it. If you don't ever listen to this, you know, I still think the argument I'm making holds. So to shift gears, many years ago when I was young and perhaps a little too interested in the Beatles, I used to get confused about band photographs. 
Specifically, the Beatles and the pictures for Let It Be looked an awful lot like the Beatles in the pictures for the White Album. But in between, there was this crazy picture of the Beatles on Abbey Road, where both George Harrison and John Lennon had insane beards, and Paul McCartney had shaved. And both Harrison and Lennon had these beards again on their solo albums released immediately after Let It Be. How was it, I wondered, that John Lennon and George Harrison could grow such crazy beards in such a short amount of time? How could they do it twice? Since I couldn't grow facial hair, I was really impressed. So I'm heading somewhere with this. I think as fans, as young fans in particular, we sometimes don't want to think about our heroes, our musical heroes as people. Now we do. I think a lot of people really, really enjoy thinking about celebrities as people now in the 21st century. But a lot of us, especially when we're younger, we like to think of them as sort of like perfect people, better than people, geniuses and all that stuff. And it's hard to imagine how a band that had made so much important music could just like disintegrate and fall apart. And as a child, I didn't realize what many people didn't know at the time in the late 60s and what many people still didn't realize prior to the Get Back documentary coming out in January, which is that the album that became Let It Be, which was supposedly the last album the Beatles made, was actually recorded in January 1969, principally, prior to most of Abbey Road. And we are going to talk about this, but I will say that if you are at all interested in it, the, the Get Back documentary that Peter Jackson made is excellent. It's called down from like 50 or 60 or even more hours of film down to eight. It shows them. It's, it, I never watched the Let It Be film, but like the Let It Be film is apparently a miserable experience. It's just them arguing. And this shows them just being normal. Like, yes, they do argue, but they also get along and George Harrison quits and all this stuff. But also it shows them right, like literally inventing some of their uh, most famous music on the spot, particularly Get Back. There's a scene in which Paul McCartney it, like starts writing Get Back in front of you. But it also it, it shows a, a lot more nuanced picture of it. It also gives you much more of an idea of like what they were trying to do with this project that never actually came into existence. With that being said, they tried to put an out, out an album called Get Back in May 1969 based on these sessions. The sessions were recorded in a film studio. Well, I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. So it would have had 15 tracks, um, and it was produced, weirdly produced, by both George Martin and an engineer named Glenn Johns, who was one of the go-to engineers of the late 1960s and early 1970s. And of course, this is notable because George Martin had been the producer for their entire existence. So after years of being the most pioneering studio band in the world, or one of the two most, depending on how you think about the mother's invention, the Beatles uh, decided they would go back to basics and record an album in the manner of Please Please Me that is live in the studio. They actually uh, reposed for its cover shot. So if you've ever seen the Red and Blue albums, the Red album has the cover of Please Please Me. The Blue album has a picture of the Beatles in the exact same positions with much longer hair. Those are the greatest hits albums that, that were released originally, I think, in the late in the early 70s, and then eventually were put on CD. And like when I was young, I grew up with my first introduction to the Beatles was the Red and Blue albums on tape. They, they actually, that was the intention so much that they could recreate the photo. But then they decided to make a film of it, which turned out to make things really bad because they hired Glenn Johns to record as the engineer and told him he was the producer. They never told George Martin he was the producer. They didn't, or he wasn't the producer. And nobody really knew what the roles were. And uh, of course, Johns assumed he was the producer because he had been told that. Worse yet, they tried to rehearse as you watch and then get back to the documentary in a film studio, specifically so the film crew could work around them. The sound was awful. And it was so awful that George Harrison quit, though he quit for a number of reasons. Notably, this was the second time George Harrison had quit in the last six months. 
And of course, Ringo Starr had quit before that. So things were deteriorating. They then attempted to record in the studios they had just purchased. And uh, that's when things started to improve. George Harrison came back. Also, he had, he had felt that when Eric Clapton recorded uh, the solo for While well, My Guitar Gently Weeps, he felt like everyone was behaving themselves. So to this end, he brought in Billy Preston, uh, Little Richard's keyboard player, and also starting a career of his own to hang out. And that apparently, according to at least some people, though, and you can definitely see it in the, in the film, they, they sort of start having more fun. Also, they were, they were playing live to tape, so they needed a person to play piano when none of them were playing piano or organ. The band played an enormous amount of material, and you can see a lot of that in the Get Back documentary. They often failed to complete takes. A lot of these were covers. Some of these were songs they wrote in the past. Some of these were new songs. Some of these were just jams. They jammed a ton. Very little of it has surfaced officially on the original Let It Be album or even on the anthology. However, uh, they released, in it, it, along with Get Back, they released a big new edition of Let It Be. Like, I think it's like five versions, all sorts of different versions, and including apparently this version that I'm talking about right now. And I haven't heard it yet, but basically you can now hear more of this than ever before if you care. The seriousness of the Back to Basics approach can be seen, of course, in the infamous Rifttop concert, which was shut down by police. I was watching this with uh, my girlfriend, who is not a big Beatles fan. I was watching the documentary, and she didn't know about the Rooftop concert, which was, it was a real experience for me to sit and see something I've seen many times and watch somebody else watch it. I'd never seen the complete one, of course, but I'd seen bits of it, but like watch somebody else see it for the first time, not having known anything about it. That was cool. You know, a band that had been screamed off of stage, trying to embrace performing again to save their, their sort of career. Uh, shows either uh, how committed they were or how desperate they were, and I'm probably a mixture of both. So there's no such thing as a back-to-basics album before Get Back. I mean, until the invention of multi-tracking in the 50s, it was technically impossible to, of course, go back to recording live in the studio, because all you could do is record live in the studio. And until Psychedelia, arguably, which made multi-tracking such a big deal in 66 and 67, no one would forsake new technology to make something that sounded less sophisticated, right? It was a brand new idea. So in 1969, it was a novel concept, even though you could argue that the birds were going back to basics by making country music in 1968. Of course, they were using overdubs when they made the country music. In fact, they overdubbed one of their members out of the record after he quit. Of <laughs> course, that was also going on live albums like we talked about last episode. When the Rolling Stones abandoned psychedelia, uh, almost as quickly as they took it up in late 1968, they still um, they still multi-tracked. Even CCR, uh, who you could argue are the inventors of roots rock, along with Bob Dylan, overdubbed keyboards and extra guitar parts all the time. Bob Dylan, I think you could argue, didn't. I'm pretty sure he was performing live in the studio, but he also by this point he was making country. Now he's this is when he shifted to country. Um, there is a band called the Flame and Groovies. Uh, who are a sort of garage rock band that uh, I thought it was the Groovin Ghoulies. Well, there might be a Groovin Ghoulies as well, but I'm, uh, the Flaming Groovies are uh, an American garage rock revival band in the late 60s who might have been, as far as I know, recording live to tape. But of course, they were a cult act. So, on the whole, this was not something that people were doing in 1967. And though it's certainly not as innovative as anything else they did, it was once again the Beatles doing something before everybody else did. Problem was that the Beatles couldn't agree on whether or not they should do it. 
they were, you know, Paul McCartney was all for it. Some of the others, they listened to the tapes. And initially, you can even see them really enjoying themselves in Get Back. But then later on, when this mix was presented to them in May, they were not happy with it. And they were not happy with it for two reasons. One of which was they were mistakes on the record and they were used to recording out the mistakes, right? Overdubbing them out. Mm-hmm. And the other reason is Glenn Johns. And I didn't know this when I wrote the book, actually. I just learned this recently from an episode, uh, notably, of uh, Switched on Pop, which also goes over this history. Glenn Johns apparently drenched the whole thing in reverb when he presented it to them. So it didn't sound <laughs> live in the studio. So they rejected it. I think that's it's, it's one of the mistakes they made. Now, it's not a huge mistake, but I think it was a, a poor decision. And we'll get into Eventually, we'll get into what they eventually did. But I do, I do want to point out that once again, McCartney's reputation is like a sort of just writing silly little love songs is like dispelled by stuff like this because he was the guy behind this. He was the one who wanted to make the live in the studio rock album. And uh, even though they failed in their attempt, um, they certainly created this idea of the sort of back to your roots album as a remedy for studio excess, notably Led Zeppelin released the nearly overdubbed free presence halfway through their okay. career after physical graffiti, which is like their big double album. Presence may have way more overdubs on it, but it's created so that you can't hear the overdubs. It sounds like almost every track on presence sounds like it has one guitar. And this is from the Led Zeppelin, you know, a band. Some of their songs have 10 guitar tracks on them. the clash infamously tried to do this with cut the crap. Their least, <laughs> their least liked album. I think there's many, many other bands who have, have tried to do this as well. It has become much like the White Album has sort of become a, a rite of passage for showing your scope, your ability to do everything you want. The idea of get back, if not get back itself, has become this idea of like saving yourself through returning to your basics within the music world, at least in the rock music world, anyway. And you know, hmm. it didn't, it didn't work, but it certainly leached out into the world that this happened and you know like i said through the the thing about the the beards like people eventually sort of became aware that this had happened even though beatles didn't really it wasn't really discussed initially something did come out of it though and that is in april they release get back back with don't let me down rosetta sweet rosetta she thought she was a cleaner but she was a fry so you can hear first of all that it starts with studio chatter which was mixed together that wasn't all in that moment but like they're tuning up and stuff it's very un on what they've been doing lately I, I got to say, after watching the Get Back documentary, I'm not sure I ever want to listen to this song ever again, despite liking it, because of the number of times it gets played in that documentary. It was the first public sign, though, aside from the rooftop concert, that the Beatles had completely abandoned studio tinkering and the first evidence of this planned album that eventually didn't re- get released. It, was, it featured Billy Preston and actually credited, the single was actually credited to the Beatles with Billy Preston. And it featured him in a role that, aside from Nicky Hopkins on Revolution, had always been performed by the Beatles or George Martin. It also sounded arguably not, like nothing on the White Album. It was even advertised as such, as Paul McCartney issued a press release discussing how it was free of studio gimmickry. That's not true. Like I said, I think the studio chatter was edited. But 
you could also argue it might be their strongest post-psychedelic single, depending on how you feel about Hey Jude and Let It Be. It isn't full of a message, despite supposedly originating as a protest song, and you can see how fuzzy that is if you watch the movie. It just shows Paul McCartney coming up with a great, catchy tr- track. And then the B-side, uh, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. But I think, actually, when I say it's their best like, post-psychedelic single, I think if you look at the A-side and the B-side together, it stands up to Revolution and Hey Jude. And I certainly think, given the B-side of Let It Be, it's probably better than that. We, we will get to that track. So, like I said, Get Back initially started as a protest song, sort of, uh, sort of mocking uh, people telling Indian immigrants to go home. But of course, that changed really quickly. And I think the lack of clarity in the lyric certainly helps the song. It features a false ending and a talking blues coda, but really that's the only symbol of uh, musical ambition. And of course, it was edited together. So it's not actually live in the studio. There's parts of the song come from different takes. Um, it's live adjacent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that, as we talked about before, that's what people did that with live stuff all the time. It does not sound like it is edited together, which is a credit to Glenn Johns. And it does mark itself as different from the White Album as a sort of return to something rootsier and less polished. It is, you know, a sign of the sea change, a movement away from psychedelia and overdubs to something else. You could say, you know, sort of towards like the country rock, country pop and country rock of the 1970s. Notably, as you can see in the film, it's actually John Lennon who plays the country lead guitar part, not George Harrison, which is just odd. In fact, I think in, in Get Back, Lennon actually says they don't let me play the solos anymore um, while he's playing this, trying to play the solo. Don't Let Me Down is for me one of John Lennon's best late songs and shows even as the Beatles were falling apart, they were still very capable. emotion that would soon come out even more on John Lennon's Plastic Ono Band, which for me is the best Beatles solo album, hot take. It's a catchy song. Bon Jovi supposedly ripped it off. I can't remember which song that is, but someone has told me more than once that Don't Let Me Down sounds an awful lot like a Bon Jovi song. So if you know, please, please let me know. I couldn't wade through Bon Jovi's catalog to find out, I'm sorry to say. I I didn't have the inclination at the time. You Um, should be sorry. Yeah, I should be. For me, it is one of his best songs, I think. And it's interesting, the lyrics, uh, they change who who the singer's talking to. He's speaking to a third person, and then he's speaking to Yoko. And they don't actually quite fit the meter, which is also interesting. There's a nice, tasteful solo by Billy Preston, and the song is actually almost completely live, except for John Lennon's favorite thing, which was to double-track his voice. He does double-track his voice for this released version, of course didn't for the plan to get back version now to make things really confusing a month and a half later they released another single and this is the ballad of john and yoko and backed with old brown shoe it was not recorded as part of the get back sessions quite the opposite it was recorded so get back and don't let me down were recorded at the end of january the next single released a month and a half later was recorded in april basically at the time that they had put out the get back single and unlike the get back sessions it was very, very different. Uh, you might associate 
especially if you were alive back then, you might have associated these two singles together because they came out very, very close together. But very much quite the opposite. This was recorded in the style of the White Album in the sense that not everyone contributed to either song. But I think that being said, as a stopgap, it's still pretty decent. And certainly it's better than Yellow Submarine. It is, you could argue, the beginnings of what became Abbey Road, at least in the abandonment of the Back to the Roots project and in terms of how it was constructed. The A-side isn't really a proper Beatles song. First of all, it is about John Lennon and Yoko Ono's honeymoon. arguably not a super Beatlesy topic. You could say it's the Beatles, almost the Beatles recording a plastic Ono band song only because John Lennon would be touring with that band very soon, only it's only two of the Beatles. But it, you could argue it's a marvel of co- cooperation because it was recorded entirely by John Lennon and Paul McCartney, the two people who, you know, were the two biggest egos in the band. And of course, it's about one of them marrying a woman who was supposedly breaking the band apart. So the fact that the two of them I think, you know, Paul McCartney gets a lot of shit for supposedly breaking up the Beatles, but I think this is a pretty good example of Paul McCartney putting aside his whatever feelings he had and just helping because it features him in full one-man band mode, one of the few instances in which he did this for another person's song. And I mean, that's kind of incredible to think about. And so like the the credits of of Ballard, John, and Yoko are John Lennon played uh, the electric guitars, he played acoustic guitar, he played percussion, and he sang lead vocal, and Paul McCartney played piano, bass, drums, maracas, and sang backing vocals. Like, he basically played all the other instruments. I, the song itself is not one of their strongest singles in my mind, but it's arranged super well, and certainly it doesn't sound like it's two guys in the studio. Alan Pollock, the musicologist we've consulted, thinks it's a marvel of 1969 recording technology because we can't tell that, and I agree with him. But, like, you know, I think it's just still not one of their strongest songs, though it is catchy. Also, I do wonder if Paul McCartney is doing a Yoko Ono impression on the uh, backing vocals. I've always sort of wondered about that. So, from the White Album on, and likely before that, George Harrison was having a harder and harder time convincing the other Beatles to play on his many songs, especially John Lennon. The band performed Old Brown Shoe during the Get Back sessions, but seemingly no intention of finalizing the arrangement. When I wrote this, I was under the impression that John Lennon had not participated in this song. Watching the Get Back movie or or TV show, you do see John Lennon interact with Harrison about Old Brown Shoe, and Lennon doesn't seem to be pissed off about it at all, or or uh, he mocks him a little bit, but otherwise is actually sort of like even at one point I think says we should play George's song again. So I think this idea that John Lennon particularly hated this song doesn't seem to be based in reality, though it really doesn't matter that much now. And apparently he did actually play a guitar part on the track that was removed. So this idea that he refused to play on it comes from the fact he can't hear him on it, but it turns out maybe they just edited him out because they preferred the final mix. Anyway, the song is a good indication of where the band was going for Abbey Road, at least in terms of the arrangement. There's a lot going on the recording, but it's not super radical in the way the music of the White Album is. You know, it's sort of a more commercial, polished sound than uh, the White Album. It's a little closer to All Things Must Pass, George Harrison's first proper studio uh, solo album. You know, there's a, it, it's well-made, I guess is the best way of putting it. There's debate about who played the guitar solo. 
Uh, it does sound like Paul McCartney. Not that that really matters that much, but it is very much a sort of indication of what they were about to do. So this brings us to the Beatles' final record, at least in terms of when it was recorded, and that is Abbey Road. Along with Revolver and Sgt. Pepper, their most famous album, and in my opinion, along with Revolver, I think they're best. I don't think there's much debate there. And this is coming from someone whose favorite record is the Wild. Notably, that was assembled for this. So even though it is officially, this is actually the Beatles' first production credit. It's produced by the George Martin with the Beatles, the first time they were ever credited that. The engineering team is the usual guys from the White Album, plus, and Sgt. Pepper, plus Alan Parsons, notably, who go on to a long career, both as an engineer and a musician. Um, some other guys, but also some of the music that was recorded for Get Back was used in Abbey Road, just in case you care about those things. This is the record in which they decided to stop fighting and put aside their differences and try to make an album like they used to. However, John Lennon was not fully involved uh, for a huge chunk of the sessions. And some of this was on purpose. Some of this was because he was losing interest. And some of this was because he got in a car accident. And actually, I believe it was his arm was broken and couldn't play guitar. So there are two reasons why it's relatively devoid of John Lennon songs, and that's, that's the good reason. The bad reason is that he was literally forming his own band and planning a tour, which would, I believe, start right when this album came out. And he also recorded a, a single and released it right at the same time, too, which is nice of him. So there were a couple of recordings from around the time we get back sessions were salvaged and overdubbed the vast majority of the material was either new or developed from white album outtakes in brand new sessions. For me, like I said, it stands as possibly the best Beatles album ever recorded, and it's remarkable that they could go out on such a high note, given how angry everyone was with everybody else. It finds them combining various aspects of their long history to great effect, the studio and technological innovations of the last few records, well, since, since Revolver, the sweet concept from Sgt. Pepper, the filler of the White Album, all to a greater purpose than ever before. Uh, it is not as innovative as Royal or Sgt. Pepper. It is not as all-encompassing as the White Album. I still think it is a better record than all of those, I would argue. I think most people agree. Some people probably don't. Again, I like the White Album more. That's my favorite. But I think this is a better album. I wouldn't try to convince anyone the White Album is better than Abbey Road. It's, the White Album is a mess, but I like it because it's a mess. So there are two things that strike the listener immediately, I think, upon listening to this. The first is the second side is drastically different from the first. The second side is dominated by a Sgt. Pepper-type suite. But whereas the Sgt. Pepper suite, the Beatles are attempting and then abandoning a full-blown concept, this album features a suite mostly made up of song fragments of the kind that you'd find on the White Album, and at least two of them are actually written for the White Album. This time the pieces are mixed together with reprises or reprises, however you like to pronounce that word, of songs appearing again later on, much like the work of Frank Zappa or early Soft Machine. People are like, who the hell is Soft Machine? But they were a pioneering psychedelic prog rock band that were making music like this at the time. The difference between Zappa and Soft Machine, of course, is that Paul McCartney and John Lennon were writing the songs and they're really catchy. You can't argue this builds to a climax, much like Sgt. Pepper does with The Day in the Life. Which one's more effective? I don't know. The other interesting, interesting innovation is the presence of the Moog synthesizer, the first widely oh. available electronic synthesizer on more than a few tracks. George Harrison had used it exclusively on his electronic sound album early in the year, an album I've actually never heard. And weirdly, given that the Beatle, he was the Beatle who disliked avant-garde music, it's odd that he made that record, but go figure. 
Now, it's worth noting, so he, so George Harrison introduced the rest of the band to it, and it would be Paul McCartney who would primarily play it on Abbey Road. It's notable and worth noting, the Beatles weren't even remotely the first band to make use of the instrument in a raw contents. Un- unlike all the other innovations they'd done, they were not first. Weirdly, Diana Ross had used it. You know who else had used it before the Beatles? The Monkees. It had already hmm. found its way into pop culture. However, what the Beatles did do is they fully incorporated it into their sound where some people, including me, have mistaken it for other instruments in the mix. Not in all cases they use it, but in some cases. I would say that Abbey Road is not the first use of the Moog, but it's arguably the most effective use to this point in history. It is often, it is sometimes used as a Moog, and sometimes it is used to replicate some other instrument. It is also, as I mentioned before, worth noting that Abbey Road is the first album the Beatles officially helped produce and mix, even though they definitely were already helping to produce and mix in the past. They created tape loops, they manipulated those tape loops, they sat in the in the production sessions, they helped arrange session musician parts, all this stuff. And John Lennon in particular had been involved in the mixing of his more experimental pieces, such as uh, I'm the Rolverse and Revolution Number 9. But this is the first and last official acknowledgement that they were involved in the production side of things. It's hard to imagine that any band today would be so involved in record production and not get a credit. You know, you could look at Brian Wilson and Frank Zappa, who were given producer credits because they gave themselves producer credits. And you could argue they're more of an influence on the artist as producer, artist as dictator producer type. But the Beatles, even when they weren't credited, were on many of the recordings since, you know, 64, 65, were involved in production at some level. So it's just one of those weird things where a band that like absolutely transformed record production was barely ever credited with record production. But here they are. So the first song is one of the biggest and most enduring Beatles hits ever, and that has come together. It is still one of the most popular ones. There was an ad like last year uh, on TV featuring Come Together. I mean, it's like, it's been 50 something years, 52 <laughs> years. It was legendarily either, uh, is uh, the cryptic lyrics are either about the Beatles or John Lennon, but or that's all, I don't know what that's, that's supposed to be part of this whole big Beatle mystery narrative. Really, it was a campaign song that, John Lennon had written for Timothy Leary and he just like messed with the words. Each verse uh, ref- ends with a refrain and there's no proper chorus. And that's a device, of course, they've been using since 1964. The brief refrain comes in for the first time a quarter of the way into the song and only the electric guitar uh, and piano interlude breaks from the pattern. Lennon's voice is famously, famously smothered in reverb. It, I guess the reason it's so popular is because no one knows what the hell it's about. And it's catchy and simple. Anyway, it's become one of John Lennon's most famous Beatles songs, one of the Beatles' most famous songs ever. It was released as a double A side, along with Something, the next track on the record, which is George Harrison's first A side, if you could call it that, since it was released with Come Together. It was his first hit single, and arguably his first and only standard. It has, of course, become a bit of a standard. Frank Zappa, uh, Frank Zappa, Frank Sinatra once said it was supposedly the best love song of the last 50 years. Something in the 
also extremely straightforward for the late Beatles and there's nothing really unusual about it and maybe that's why it has also become quite popular though not as popular as come together of course it features one of George Harrison's trademark tasteful solos I have of course heard the anthology demo and because I'm a Beatles snob I've decided I liked it more but it is a lot less overproduced so it also has a uh, a bridge in it that the the official version doesn't have that's a silly idiosyncratic take. Uh, this is, of course, a very famous song at this point, and it is very much like the Beatles to pair a, a song that's supposedly a protest song with absurdist lyrics with a ballad that Frank Sinatra likes. It's very, very Beatles-ish to, for them to do that. The next track is Maxwell Silver Hammer. She's getting ready to go A knock comes on the door Bang, bang, Maxwell Silver Another humorous Paul McCartney story song, similar, I guess, in silliness to Rocky Raccoon, but of course, not at all musically like Rocky Raccoon and not lyrically like Rocky Raccoon, even though I guess you could say like the story song part of it involving death is similar to Rocky Raccoon. It is much more vaudeville. It has sound effects, including an anvil. It is incredibly well-produced. I think you could get really annoyed with it if it weren't so well-produced. There's slightly different musical backing of every verse, which is, of course, something the Beatles have been doing for quite a while, very subtly changing things. And there's, you know, like I said before, a bunch of sound effects. It is, you know, I guess reasonably funny, certainly the first time you hear it. And it also uh, has a, a ton of Moog synthesizer in it, featured as the Moog synthesizer and also duplicating cool. other instruments. As an example of record production, it's quite good. How you feel about the song, I think, it depends how much your tolerance for these kinds of things. I think Rocky Raccoon is a more like compelling song as a song, mm-hmm. but I think as a, as as record production, this is it's quite sophisticated. And then, of course, because it's the Beatles we're talking about, that goes completely away for the next track, which is uh, another Paul McCartney song, uh, an unusually simple song, arguably one of the best all band performances of the Beatles' career. And that's Owen Ireland. I think it features one of Paul McCartney's best vocal performances and even better actually is there's performance on the demo on anthology, which is just like, and you actually get to see him do it too in, um, in get back the film where he just gets to a range that is so incredibly high. There's a really aggressively distorted and ragged guitar part uh, by George Harrison. It sounds like soul, but it is a blues set to a pop structure, which I guess is sort of what soul soul is anyway it's much rawer than almost everything else on the record which you know befits the fact that it was originally written for the get back sessions there aren't like the typical guitar licks in in between the vocals instead it's just like aggressively sort of ragged arpeggio playing honestly 
it's my second favorite song on the album. It's one of my favorite Beatles songs. It's just like a very good example, I think, of where they could go if they wanted to without the help of all the other things. And notably, like it's it's not a live recording. There's actually five. It was pieced together, I think, through five different dates, but it sounds very much like a live recording. And it's just like, I don't know, I think it's fantastic. I'd like to be under the sea. And then we go back to the silliness again with Ringo Starr's, the highlight of Ringo Starr's composing career for the Beatles, Octopus's Garden. It was his second contribution to the band, but you could argue it's leaps and bounds above Don't Pass Me By, I think, safe to say. Now, when I wrote my book, I wrote he apparently had help from Harrison on the music, which is hardly surprising as it doesn't sound like the guy who only knows three chords. In Get Back, you see George Harrison literally tell Ringo Starr what to play. <laughs> so <laughs> I think it's safe to say that George Harrison probably deserves a co-write credit to actually see him do that. I was Maybe. like laughing my ass off in it when it happened. I was like, oh God, this happened regularly with the Beatles. They would bring in like song incomplete songs and then they would like someone else would help and then they would just go straight with the traditional like credits, right? If it was Lennon or McCartney, it was both of them. If it was Harrison and somebody else, it was Harrison, it was Ringo Starr and somebody else was Ringo Starr. And they deviated from this only a couple of times in their history. It's still weird. Like it's very clearly, this is not the work of the person who, uh, who made don't pass me by. Right. Like it's much more sophisticated again, like Maxwell silver hammer. It is a just incredible display of record production for such a silly, goofy children's song. It features faux honky tonk piano. It features underwater sound effects. It features fantastic guitar playing from uh, George Harrison. It features the Moog synthesizer again. You know, if we can't admire the lyrics, and I don't think we should, we can admire the arrangement and the production and the willingness to do anything. To me, again, like Maxwell Silverhammer, but maybe not quite as effectively, it shows the band's ability to turn something very inconsequential into like a successful piece of music through arrangements and production and performance. And now we come to the theme song of this podcast, my favorite Beatles song of all time. And that is I Want You, She's So Heavy by John Lennon, the last song on the first side. What can I say? I love this, so I will try. I will try to be not ridiculous about it. It is a ridiculously simple lyric that combines like jazz lounge music with basically metal <laughs> in the same song in two different time signatures. The jazz parts are in 4-4. Four, four. The, the proto-metal or early metal parts are in 6-8. The song prominently features John Lennon's best guitar playing on any Beatles song ever, as that's who's actually playing the jazz guitar uh, soloing. On the, on the first parts of the song, which is something that for years I did not believe, even though I was told, just because it's so much better than most of his other soloing. And then there's also Paul McCartney's fantastic swooping bass, which I actually at one point thought was the Moog because of how fast and swooping it is. But I've read in multiple places that it is his bass guitar and not a Moog synthesizer. I could be wrong, but I was convinced it was the Moog. And I eventually read, I read many times that it wasn't, but I've never seen them play it. So I don't know. 
it does sound like a synthesizer because it's like, but if it is him playing it, it's, it's one of the highlights of his career as a bass player. Uh, the coda, the metal coda goes on for 14 repetitions. So very much like Heiju goes on forever, constantly building white noise from a machine, white noise machine John Lennon brought in the studio. And then it was just cut arbitrarily. It just stops. And uh, yeah, it's, it's bizarre. It's crazy. It's aggressively strange. And it works, in my opinion, very well. John Lennon uses the same lyrical tricks he utilized on Don't Let Me Down, simple lyrics which change the audience from verse to refrain or verse to chorus. Billy Preston, great job on the organ as well. To me, it's one of the standout records. It's my favorite song on that album, obviously. It's the second longest song in their catalog and the longest proper song because the longer song is Revolution Number no. 9. The abrupt ending was a, a completely on purpose, though it actually uh, led to a use of the same device by accident on the second side. Anyway, it's just Lennon doesn't contribute a whole lot to this album, but like to me, this is like very much shows his uh he could when he wanted to still commit to it. Big fan. I know okay. not everyone loves it, <laughs> but uh, it is my favorite Beatles song. So side two begins with Here Comes the Sun. Notably very, very different than I Want You. This is George Harrison's second contribution. It is notably, of the, you could argue, the same quality as something in terms of the quality of the melody and, and certainly how enduring. And you could argue Here Comes the Sun has become even more popular than something over the ensuing 50 years. Once again, features the Moog used subtly. It features a, a, a thing they were commonly doing at this point, which is a Leslie guitar part. That is a guitar fed through the rotating speaker of an organ that makes the guitar shimmer. And that was a common thing. The Beatles invented it, and then it became a very common thing. In Did they? Yep. I think oh, I'm pretty neat. sure they were the first. I thought I mentioned that in a previous episode, didn't I? I think Maybe did. you did. Maybe it just didn't click. But I mean, there's, there's so many rad. things they invented. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, now, of course, they, you know, they didn't invent the Leslie, the Leslie speaker. They yeah. just invented taking the speaker out of the organ and running the guitar yeah. through. Yeah. It was written in Eric Clapton's garden. I don't know why anyone cares about that. It does mark the like first completely upbeat song George Harrison arguably ever wrote, uh, at least for the Beatles, and is very, you know, much sunnier than the, the last song on the first side. And you could argue, you know, changes the tune of the record of the album. There are lots of little subtle tricks to the arrangements, which is very, very common for the Beatles at this point. You know, I, I think, again, it's a very well-produced song. It is like much of the stuff on Abbey Road, a, a sort of a marvel of record production where, like, are the songs the best songs the Beatles wrote? I don't know, but, like, it's, it's you know, it's everything sort of comes together to create a, a pretty impressive track. It's also notable John Lennon did not play on it. Not the only song he didn't play on. The next track is Because by John Lennon. In which Ringo Starr didn't play on, funnily enough. It is one of the great examples of the Beatles showing off their harmony abilities, the three main Beatles. You could argue it's the greatest, or at least the most intense use of them. 
and they they went crazy. So they recorded three sets of their three voices. So there are actually nine voices instead of three, thanks to the wonders of multi-tracking. It features another Leslie guitar part, and it also features an electric harpsichord played by George Martin. Apparently, it's actually the uh, chord sequence of Moonlight Sonata backwards, but I don't know. I, I can't play instruments, I, I, and I can't read music, so I don't know if that's true. Alan Pollock actually claims it's similar to Bach. He does not claim it's Moonlight Sonata backwards. If you do know one way or the other, let me know. It also shows a completely different side to John Lennon than his more avant-garde works, and certainly I Want You. It is uh, very, very different than everything, almost anything he's been writing in the last few years, and much more similar to the kind of things that he had been writing earlier. And it's very different than his solo music at the time, too. It is also drumless, which is a very rare thing for a Beatles song, especially a Beatles song that wasn't based on acoustic guitar. The next track is You Never Give Me Your Money by Paul McCartney. argue the like the polished version of john lennon's happiness is a warm gun from the um, white album or you could argue uh, paul mccartney's response to it it is a mini suite of unrelated musical fragments this time the fragments are not referencing traditional rock and roll like they did in warm gun but uh, yeah it features fairly innocuous lyrics but fairly uh, significant genre hopping from silly ballad to faux boogie woogie music and of course a fairly incredible vocal performance from Paul McCartney singing in different styles and different voices on the different sections of the song. You know, the rest of the band acquits themselves fairly well, but of course, Paul McCartney is playing multiple instruments and very clearly uh, he's the real star of the piece. It is arguably a preview of the suite to come in form, if not in content. And uh, actually there's a reprise or reprise of You Never Give Me Your Money in Carry That Weight. So you could say it's like the overture to the suite. The next track is Sun King, a song by John Lennon, who wrote it in response to Peter Green's Albatross, uh, Peter Green of Fleetwood Mac, back when Fleetwood Mac were still a blues band. Albatross is an uh, instrumental that became a hit single in the late 60s. Sun King is not an instrumental, so I don't exactly know how that works, but it features the same famous free part harmonies of Because, but there's only three of them this time, not nine of them. Weirdly, it has this very same first four words as Here Comes the Sun, and it was originally called Here Comes the Sun King. I definitely see John Lennon's commitment to the group reflected in this, that he couldn't even come up with his own lyrics at this point for the Beatles a little bit. Like, it's super weird to me that he, he did that. It's very similar to Because in terms of the arrangement and harmony vocals, and you could almost think of it as a Because reprise. Weirdly, Mean Mr. Mustard, the next track, also by John Lennon, is a continuation of Sun King. They perform the rhythm tracks together. And it's weird because if you listen to the two songs together, like you would when you're listening to the album, it really does not sound like it. It actually, to me, sounds like the, the same band is performing Me and Mr. Mustard in the next track, Polythene Pan, but that is not exactly, that's not at all what happened in the studio. And 
again, a uh, testament to their ability to overdub and to mix and stuff because like my ears totally hear the Mimas and Mustard in the next song together, not the other way around. This to me feels like the real beginning of the suite. And that's because, you know, it's the first of the songs in the suite that feels like a fragment. It's the same tempo as Sun King, but because of the beat sounds different to my ears, at least. And it certainly, I, I really feel like Sun King and me and Mr. Mustard are aesthetically very, very different. It does a bit of a jump cut. It's absolutely like just cuts straight into Polythene Pam, the next track also by John Lennon. And actually Polythene Pam and she came in the bathroom window were recorded together, um, saving them from having been edited together. And you can definitely tell from the finished recording, it actually, on record to me, it sounds like all three of them were played together, even though I said there's like a jump cut. The instrumentation for Paul Thiem Pam and She Came Through the Bathroom Window, the, the Paul McCartney song that follows it, are, are very, very similar, if not exactly the same. And you can actually hear John Lennon in the studio talking about the segue as they're changing styles. Polythene Pam is about a girl who apparently really did wear polythene when she went out at night. I don't know. John Lennon says that's what it's about. And she came in through the bathroom window is a real story about how a fan broke into Paul McCartney's house. Both these two songs and Mean Mr. Mustard are song fragments from the White Album and Get Back sessions. I think Polythene Pam and Mean Mr. Mustard are from the White Album sessions, and She Came In Through the Bathroom Window is from Get Back. And you could argue, despite being song fragments, they all show off their, those are strong suits. Lennon's is kind of insistent with silly lyrics. Paul McCartney's is incredibly melodic and pseudopoetic. And She Came In Through the Bathroom Window is uh, certainly less of a fragment than the previous two songs. It actually does feel like a full song, even though it is like less than two minutes long. The next track is Golden Slummers, and the track after that is Carry That Weight. They're both song fragments, but they're both written by Paul McCartney, and they're also combined by having the rhythm tracks performed together just like the previous two songs. The first song is partially based on an old a poem that Paul McCartney wrote many years ago. The second fragment is supposedly about the Beatles all putting in an effort to make a better album, much like All Together Now from Yellow Submarine, though I don't really know if that's true. They both feature elaborate orchestration and very similar structures with one exception, and that is that Carry That Weight features pieces of You Never Give Your Money mixed into it, which I mentioned before. And Golden Slumbers is a fairly standout vocal performance, whereas Carry That Weight has the band singing lead vocals for like the only time in their, like all four of them, for the only time in the band's career. So, Carry That Weight segues into what you could say was, at least up until that point, the greatest finale a band had created for themselves, at least in the studio. The end is basically the band doing a climactic performance on a good night where everyone gets acknowledged, but also they happen to be accompanied by an orchestra. It is a bit of a medley too, just like you never give me your money, only this one is more compact. 
First, it features the first and only drum solo Ringo Starr ever performed for the Beatles. It's become an actually quite famous drum solo. I have listened to many drum solos in my life, unfortunately, and the number of times people have played (laughs) the Ringo Starr drum solo in the middle of their own drum solo is like more times than I can count, which is so weird to me because it's, you know, it's just a bit of a drum solo. But like, I guess everyone's heard this record, right? So like every drummer is like, oh, I'm going to include the Ringo drum solo in the middle of mine, you know? Then there is a bit of a jam with nonsense lyrics. Then it famously features Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and John Lennon trading two bars each of a guitar solo and repeating that two more times. John Lennon is notably distinguishable as the last of the three by clearly being the least sophisticated, let's put it that way, at one point just strumming. That being said, I've heard this a million times, and even even despite all my various, my cynicism and all that stuff, it still gives me chills to hear it. And then it is followed up with an extremely mushy orchestral part, which I really don't know why, though apparently... Alan Pollock, the musicologist I've quoted many times, notes that John Williams has stolen this bit to a bunch of his scores, or like at least copies that sort of finale thing. That's interesting, if it's true. But it's not the last track, of course. The last track is instead the first ever hidden track on an LP, and that is Paul McCartney's Her Majesty. It comes 14 seconds after the end finishes, and it comes in with a Pounding chord. And it is completely unrelated to Her Majesty and sounds like it might have come from the end, but actually it comes from Mean Mr. Mustard. It was spliced between Mean Mr. Mustard and Pauline Pam, excised from it, and then stuck. Might I ask a question? Sure. So you say hidden track. Yes. How do you hide a track on a record? Because like when I used to make hidden tracks on CDs, yeah, like it actually involved moving place markers for the track listing. Sure. So you had to like you'd open up track five at the start, and then you'd rewind for four minutes to get to the hidden track because it was a hidden track. Yeah, it wasn't a bonus track. Like was this a bonus track or was it a hidden track? Okay, I guess in your in your technical version, this is a bonus track, but it's the first ever of those. Okay, cool. That's so, I, so the, I just wanted to make sure my headspace was in the yeah, right area. So the half, having to have to wait for the last song for yeah. some space of time longer than a normal gap between songs, as far as I know, this is the first time. It was not done previously. And yeah, so it begins with the last chord of Me and Mr. Mustard, and it had been originally spliced between Me and Mr. Mustard and Polythene Pam, and then it was cut out and put at the end here. It's only 20 seconds long, so it is the shortest Beatles song ever, if you can call that it ends abruptly just like i want you on the first side but whereas i want you was written that way the ending of to her majesty or sorry her majesty is a result of it being plucked out between minister mustard and polythene pam its intended last note was left as the intro to polythene pam instead and so if you go back and listen to polythene pam you can hear a week of like 
the last note of Her Majesty in between I mean, Mr. Mushroom and Palsy Pam, which they just, it happened by accident. The person didn't do a good job and they heard it and they were like, that sounds cool. Let's do it. The ending medley of their career is like an onslaught of brief little melodic fragments, most of which probably wouldn't have merited much on their own, I think, but worked together to create a palpable sense of momentum up to one of the greatest moments in the band's history. And even though I don't particularly like solo performances on band albums, I think Her Majesty works as an honest surprise, at least the first time you hear it. And it, of course, created a huge trend in the industry, as you call them, Dave, bonus tracks. Thank you. I think it's safe to say, in the fall of 1969, there was nothing like Abbey Road. The only other rock musicians who had attempted anything like the suite on the second side were Frank Zappa and the Soft Machine. Both bands lacked the Beatles' melodic abilities, not to mention their fan base. And though Frank Zappa's approach was definitely more radical, and the Soft Machines might be more musically interesting, neither had the impact on music as the Beatles suite did. Everyone heard this. It was like Sgt. Pepper, but reined in, polished off, and what a lot more resemblance to rock music as opposed to pop, and with better songs. I think the album is the most consistent thing they ever made, or at least they had made since Revolver, and that's obviously relative because many other bands would love to have this level of consistency while pushing boundaries. It is also, you know, at its share of comparatively modest innovations, the heavy use of the Moog synthesizer. Like I said, not a new thing, but rare for a British band, if not you know, American bands and artists were using it already. And of course, with the concluding suite. I think to this day, it's still one of the best albums in the 1960s. I think it's, and the, the really incredible part is how good it sounds all these years later. Like it sounds modern, right? Like you go back and listen to the early Beatles records, they sound old. Abbey Road sounds like, you know, it sounds like it could have been made the other day, I think. So, that brings us to a couple last little things before we get to our, our two final episodes. So the first thing is that Come Together and Something were released as a single weirdly after the album came out, which was something the Beatles had not normally done. So it was like a month later, I think. Uh, then there was talk about releasing Get Back. First, they talked about it. I should say they talked about it before releasing Abbey Road again, but they thought Abbey Road was so much better that they couldn't do that. So then they shelved it. And then they thought about releasing in the fall. And then, of course, John Lennon quit. And uh, they decided they would make no formal announcement until they worked out the details. The Beatles were their own industry at this point, and they had all sorts of formal and informal business and legal connections. And it's worth noting, it took them until 1975. So we're talking about six years later to sort it out. So in November, Paul McCartney briefly mentioned the possibility of the band ending in an interview. It was not official. In December 1969, a charity album was put out. And the only reason I'm talking about this is because of a track included. And it's really sort of funny sometimes what happens to works of art before the creators are sure how people will react to it. Across the Universe is now one of the most well-known Beatles songs. And it began as a failed attempt to get on the B-side of Lady Madonna. And then it sat around for an entire year. It was deemed not good enough for the Yellow Submarine album, or something. Was decided not to use it for the Elsa Marine album, given that only a northern song and altogether an hour on that. It's really hard to see what the hell they were thinking. But anyway, they eventually made a decision to include it on a charity album with birds added to the song so we could get the point about disappearing nature, I guess. And the charity album was about um, saving the planet. But the release for the, of that charity album was delayed for nearly a year. I am not a huge fan of this song, so it doesn't really shock me. But the thing is, it has become one of their most famous songs. So it is very weird. You can't hear most of the instruments on the charity version. 
which you can listen to on Past Masters or now on the streaming service. Or, and you can't really hear them on the Let It Be version, which we will get to later for that matter, because of all sorts of problems with the recording. It has been sped up and slowed down a bunch of times. It was sped up to match the bird sounds, and later it was slowed down to get rid of them and also to match the orchestration for Let It Be. Its presence on Let It Be is decidedly odd since it was at least part of the orchestration, what might be called psychedelic folk rock, and therefore completely out of touch with 1970. On the Charity album, we can imagine it was, wasn't maybe that out of place, but I don't know. I, I've never heard the Charity album. I don't know what else would want it. It seems very likely the Beatles weren't happy with the version they recorded. They did do versions of it during the Get Back sessions, actually, although they never actually uh, finished any of them. Um, and they donated the track because they had nothing else to donate, and they apparently wanted to participate in the uh, charity album. So that's a weird little thing, and we will talk more about Across the Universe later. With John Lennon having unofficially left the band, eventually to tour with the Blasco Owner Band right around this time, and literally being physically in another country, uh, the Beatles entered the studio one last time in early 1970, which produced George Harrison's very short I, Me, Mine, and that is the last official Beatles recording session. Uh, despite John Lennon's absence. I don't know why it was official, even though he wasn't there. As a result, the remaining Beatles again thought about releasing Get Back in a new form a full year after it's recorded in January 1970. And this one would be 15 tracks. They eventually decided, once again, I think coming very close to releasing, I think both this one and the March 1969 version were mastered. But then they decided, nope, we don't like it. And uh, that's it for the moment. Hmm. But of course, there would be one more record, which we will talk about. Any any uh, strong feelings? Um, strong feelings. Hey, Bulldog. Top shelf, top shelf, top shelf. It was interesting revisiting the um, Ballad of Yoko Ono. Yeah. Because I, like, I hadn't listened to that track in a million years, and it barely even registered the last time. That's kind of interesting looking back at that now. And it was also interesting the, the way you're talking about the checkout of um, John Lennon. Again, like it's not something that ever really registered when I was younger when I was listening to the Beatles, but it definitely is something that is telling. The thing is, publicly, because of what happened, which we will briefly talk about in the next episode, yeah. Paul McCartney is the one who everyone thought left. Yeah. Even though it was John Lennon much earlier. And so no one, no one knew like the, they were, they hit it essentially. And the thing is, it's not like no one actually knew he was literally touring with another band and releasing singles. Very give, subtle. I think it's uh cold Turkey or it might be give peace a chance. One of those tracks was released in 1969, you know, I could look it up right now. Like before, like the official breakup of the Beatles is April, 1970. And, uh, John Lennon was putting out solo albums well before that, but the other Beatles had too. But his singles, pull up his discography, his singles, like he re- released a couple of singles before that. Uh, let me see here. He released Give Peace a Chance in July 1969, so before Abbey Road, and he released Cold Turkey sometime in 1969, October. So at the same time, actually competing with Come Together, Fun Enough. That, that is kind of ironic. And then, of course, he, he released Instant Karma before Abbey Road, or sorry, before Let It Be came out. So, I mean, it's not like you could pretend nothing was going on, but it wasn't officially over uh, until April. So, 
yeah and so we are going to briefly cover that in the next episode <laughs>